Good evening. Good evening, Pastor Mike. Come on, that's better. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 23. Continue on in our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Isaiah. What we're looking at, again, just to set the stage, is King Hezekiah, this young king, has come upon the scene. His father, King Ahaz, was a very evil man and contrary to God. Hezekiah, especially if you're reading through the one-year Bible, we've read of his ministry, he was a man who sought after the Lord. And so as he is coming into power, Assyria has also come into power, and Assyria has been consuming nations, and there has been nobody that is able to stop Assyria. And so the temptation for this young king would be to depend upon the surrounding nations for protection and for security. But God wants his people, and this is a key, this is a point, to depend upon him. We're not to depend upon our riches or anybody else's riches. We're not to depend upon any other power, but we are to seek God out in all the situations and circumstances of our lives. And there's going to be times when that is severely tested. Here with Hezekiah, Assyria came up to his very gates, and it's there, and we'll be reading about that in Isaiah, that God delivered him as he trusted in the Lord, God was faithful. And God has always been faithful. So blessed is the nation whose trust is in the Lord. Well, we can fast forward that to our day. Are we a nation who trusts in the Lord? Well, obviously not. We're a nation that continues to expel God from our, well, from every aspect of that nation. But really the more important question is, are we a church that trusts in the Lord? especially as we move into this election season in 2016. Next November, or at least a year from this November, you are going to be asked to vote for a new president. And I encourage you to do that, to open up your Bible, open up the voter's guide to see which one aligns with God's, well, I shouldn't say God's belief, but with God's truth, and then cast your ballot accordingly. But keep in mind, It's not that leader that is going to bring prosperity. It's not that leader that's going to bring health and well-being to this nation. It's the people as we seek after God, as we are one nation under God once again. And so we're going to be hearing of all the ranting and raving and campaigning that's going to be going on. But again, we need to be focused upon God's word and what God desires of us. So today we've been, well, in the past we've been looking at all these surrounding nations, so tonight we're going to be looking at the city of Tyre. Now the city of Tyre would be in direct contrast to Assyria. Assyria's achievement, they had been on the military battlefield, and again, they've been consuming nations. Tyre's achievements would be through commerce. They were a very prosperous nation. Now, they were north of Israel, right on the Mediterranean, and they were known for their trade, and they were known for their basically shipping and receiving. If Assyria was a great land power, then Tyre was a very prosperous, seagoing nation. One country's power came through military, and again, the others came through their money. Now, the picture for King Hezekiah is... You could so easily look to the north. You could look towards this city-state and look for them for your well-being. Again, very prosperous because Assyria is coming. What are you going to do? Are you going to seek after the Lord? 
are you going to seek after these nations? Well, God is showing us one by one that these nations aren't going to survive. A lot of them will not survive Assyria, and they will never again exist as they had before or exist at all as a nation. And so he was not to seek nations based upon their might, neither is he to seek them based upon their riches. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 24, it says, The disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And so we have this tendency to trust in maybe a bank account, a retirement account. None of those things are bad. We have a responsibility to save money and to prepare for the future. But if your trust is there, if your contentment is there, then something's a little misguided. Do you look at your bank account and does it cause you to be depressed? And some of us have very depressing bank account balances, but that's not the point. Our trust is in God. And again, you should be able to look at the course of your life and see your, your spiritual life and your trust in the Lord. And again, this good measurement is our finances and see how God was really with us every step of the way. I know that he was with you every step of the way, regardless of what occurred, because you're still here. You're still here, and God delivered you somehow in some way. And I can look at my wife and my life and, and, and see how the Lord's provided. Because again, I had a business, but I had a business that went upside down. And again, it was very prosperous for a period of time, but God had other plans. And when I was thinking about it the other day, and just the the pathway that God took us to get to the pulpit, the hard times that entered in, coming to the very threshold of even losing our house. But in the end, I can look back and see the times that we trusted in the Lord and see how God came through and how God was faithful. So whatever it is that you're dealing with here tonight, they don't look at the situation or circumstance. Look at the God. Look at our God. Remember who you are. You're a child of that God. This is the God who created all with just simply his spoken word. How much more so is he able to deliver you from your situations and circumstances? And so life, life is a series of events designed for us to not depend upon power, some outside source of power, outside source of wealth, but to depend upon God who gives us all generously. Not necessary that he's going to fill your bank account, but he is going to provide all of your needs. What did he say? Seek first the kingdom of heaven. This is my wife's favorite counseling verse. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Make God the priority. Look at all that's going on in your life. Make God the priority. And what does he do? He adds all of our needs. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and the Lord will provide for all of your needs. So once again, God speaks through the prophet with the wisdom of his foreknowledge. And that's important to understand, the wisdom of God's foreknowledge. Again, he inhabits eternity. God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. God knows what's going to happen next week. You've come out to seek the Lord through the word of God here tonight. That's good, because God is going to prepare you for what you are entering into next week. So whatever the hardest trial that you are going to enter into, there's always the day before, there's always the time before. And it's the time before that God prepares us as we move in to whatever that might be. And so if we're not seeking the Lord, we're still entering into the trial, we're just going to be ill-prepared. 
But as we're seeking the Lord, He's existing in the midst of that trial, and we enter into what He has prepared for us. So everything that He speaks to us and the preparation that He works in our lives are all based upon the foreknowledge of God, that God knows my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I have it all filled out on my calendar. Matter of fact, the person who does a lot of the administration work gave me the next two months in the events, and I've got it all on my calendar, and I got it all set out with reminders and alarms and the whole thing. And so you think I could just check out for the next two months. But no, there's the necessity of prayer. There's the necessity of seeking God's will and understand that, well, just because you have it on the calendar, Pastor Mike, doesn't mean that God's going to have it come to pass as you have it all planned out, and that's okay. I want to seek him out because he has that future and that hope for us all. He's got the plan that is working out. So the predestination of man and the predestination of nations are always based upon the foreknowledge of God. A section of scripture that I've read almost every one of our Sunday evening studies as we are looking at these nations is Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, or declaring what's going to happen before it happens. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, and this is key, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all of my pleasure. And so God's counsel is going to stand. His word is going to play out, and he is going to do all of his pleasure are the things that happen are going to be according to the will of God. And so you say, how does ISIS fit into all of that? And how does hardship and evil and the things that we see in the news, how does all of that play out? Get this morning's teaching. We talked about that then. It all plays out, we know, at the end, though, to the glory of God. So what foreknowledge of Tyre did God have that would seal their fate? Well, a big part of the problem with Tyre, like the United States of America, it was one time an ally of Israel. During King David's day and King Solomon's day, Israel Israel was aligned with King or allied with King Haram, King of Tyre. But the problem is Tyre soon became a curse to Israel. If you recall, the kingdom was split, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. There was a northern kingdom and one of the most evil of kings, King Ahab. He had a wife that was named Jezebel. She came from Tyre and she was a curse to God's people. But just as soon as, as surely as Tyre became a curse to Israel, God, God judged Tyre as well. They became, well, they came under siege Uh, after the fall of Jerusalem by Babylon, some 13 to 15 years after the fall of Babylon. Babylon came, I'm sorry, after the fall of Jerusalem. Babylon came up and besieged Tyre. Tyre had this island fortress that was just off the coast that had a, a very small roadway that led in that was easily blocked off and it had some fresh water supplied to it and they had food stored up for it. And so they were able to hold on for a long time and they waited Babylon out. And actually they survived Babylon. But in 332 BC, it would eventually fall when conquered by Alexander the Great 
he went in and destroyed Tyre and never has it existed to the degree that it did back in the day, which again reminds me of this verse that we pretty much have spoken each time we gather together on a Sunday night as well, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, which our politicians in this nation would do well to remember. God told Abraham, and again, this is the immutable word of God. It does not change. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, that has already come about because Christ came through Israel, came through the Jewish race, and all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we can look back in history. The nations that have blessed Israel have been blessed Those who have cursed Israel have been cursed. And again, you can look at the United States of America. Where are we at with God? Well, a reflection, generally speaking, nationwide, a reflection of where we are with God is where we are at with Israel. And as we have supported Israel and been there for Israel, God has blessed us. We don't seem to be a nation lately that is on the road to blessings. We're not a nation that is blessing Israel, so that should only come to pass. So just as Tyre had gone from friend to foe of Israel and is being judged because of it, the United States seems to be heading down that same road today. The Word of God tells us the territory that God had given Israel was to be forever. And never was Israel to give it to anybody else. It was to be their possession for all time. They have that responsibility to possess it, and we have a responsibility to support it. I don't mean to be political, just biblical. But what is the hot issue with Israel is Palestine. And a great majority of this nation, and even he who sits in the White House, they're of the mindset that Israel should be giving some of Israel away. Well, that is contrary to God. You're not blessing Israel with that mindset. Now, what right do we, the United States, have to tell Israel that they need to give some of their land away? I mean, just think about that. We're telling another nation to give some of their land away. Well, number one, do you think the United States would ever give any of their land away to anybody? I mean, come on, it doesn't matter who would tell us that, we would never give anything away. But the only time that we would have any kind of a right, and looking at Israel's situation and the Palestinian situation, to tell Israel to give some of their property to Palestine is if we first made it right here. And we'd have to give a lot of this land back to the American Indian. And if you didn't want to go that far back, we should at least, well, before we tell Israel to do that, we should set the example, we should give California back to Mexico. Because what did we do? We took it from Mexico. I don't recall my history book. I might be wrong on this, but I don't think we ever paid them anything for California, let alone Texas and the other territories, Arizona and so on and so forth. But do you really think we're going to give California back to Mexico? I mean, just saying that is kind of ridiculous. But that's my point. It should be the same way to Israel. Because, again, when I was in Israel, I was taking how small it really is. It's about from the Mexican border up to here, and then from here out to the shore, out to the beach. That's about the size of Israel. I mean, it's shaped a little bit more like California, but nonetheless, it's not very big to begin with. 
and he could probably shoot a howitzer across the country, let alone missiles. And so Israel, Israel has been given that property to possess. It's been given to them, and we can't forget this, by God. And so the prophet, the prophet is looking at Tyre, and again, he's prophesying because, again, God inhabits the future. He's told them these things, and the first thing that the prophet speaks is a lamentation or a dirge. In chapter 23, verse 1, the burden against Tyre. So again, Isaiah is seeing all of these things happen, and it's weighing upon him. It's weighing upon him to such a degree, he has to speak of these things. And just as the prophet had to speak of these things, we need to be reading these things and understanding these things, both historically, but also currently, plugging our nation in where we need to plug it in. He says, well, you ships of Tarshish. Now, if you remember Tarshish, that's, somebody was running to Tarshish. If you recall Jonah, Jonah was running from God. God had spoke to him and told him to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel, and he didn't want to do that. And so he's thinking, where do I go? Where do I go to hide from God? Well, about the furthest place that he could go to hide from God would be Tarshish. That was the end of the known world of the day. They didn't know of the existence of the United States. And so if you were in Israel and you were sailing out the Mediterranean, heading west, the last piece of land that you would see until you headed out into the Atlantic Ocean would be Tarshish. And so in his mind, he's in the bottom of the ship, as far down as he can go, going as far away from God as he possibly can. And so more than likely, the prophet is speaking of Tarshish because, again, that's the end of the known world. And so the idea is he's speaking of everything that is in between. Now, Tarshish was a seagoing people as well and probably had a lot of trade with Tyre as well. Well, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, Tyre, so that there is no house, no harbor from the land of Cyprus, it is revealed to them. Cyprus would be an island off the shore where Tyre is. It was more than likely a place that they would stop and resupply before they got into Tyre. But if Tyre was non-existent, then they would have to more than likely stop at Cyprus. Cyprus. So he's speaking of these ships that are kind of stuck there. Verse 2, But be still, you inhabitants of the coastline, you merchants of Sidon, whom those who cross the sea have filled. And on great waters, the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the river, probably the Nile River, is her revenue, and she is the marketplace for the nations. Again, this distribution point. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. The strength of the sea saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children, neither do I rear young men nor bring up virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. Egypt probably prospered off of Tyre and its shipping, distributing its wealth. Because keep in mind, the Nile River, it would flood the area and make a marshland in Egypt and bring fertile soil from the interior of Africa. And so the reason that Egypt was so powerful was because of the Nile River and the riches that they were able to glean from the crops they were able to grow because of the Nile River. Tyre, they would probably transport them up to Tyre, and Tyre would ship them across the world. Cross over to Tarshish. Well, you inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your joyous city whose antiquity, antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her afar off to dwell? The economic status of the world was dependent upon Tyre. Look at the economic status of the world today. The economic status of the world today basically hangs by a thread. 
I, I read in the, uh, the news this past week, and I confirmed it just before the study today, it's believed, a matter of fact, one of the politicians said it's 100%, it's going to happen, that Puerto Rico is going to default on a loan tomorrow. They almost defaulted in July, and another payment is due, and they're going to default upon that, and that's going to send reverberations across the world. Now, it's not going to send us into depression, and it's probably not going to send us into what we just experienced, the economic downturn, but again, it's another straw on the camel's back. Our economic class that we are still, a collapse that we are still uh, recovering from, it came very suddenly. And remember, all of a sudden, in our lifetime, this hadn't happened. All of a sudden, banks are defaulting and they're closing. Remember the long lines, people trying to get their money out, these runs that existed on the bank? And it affected all of us personally somehow, some way. If you had an IRA account, all of a sudden you weren't making the same interest, and actually you were probably even losing money on it for at least a period of time. And so there was this real economic hardship that entered into our, our personal lives. We see this situation in the past couple of weeks as well in Greece. Greece was getting ready to default on loans as well. And I... Saw, I read an article on this on the internet, and it spoke of how the financial crisis in Greek affects our economy today if they default, because Greece is a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger than, than Puerto Rico, or at least more influenced because they're key to the European economy. The problems if Greece defaults upon a loan first, as the European economic zone countries have come to an agreement to bail out Greece, if they truly do, which looks like they're going to, those countries will have less to spend on American goods, causing job losses over here. Secondly, if Greece defaults on its debt, it would mean that any entities that bought bonds, banks, governments, and private investors, would have to readjust their balance sheets. Those entities had relied on interest payments paid by Greek bonds to fund other investments and to buy goods and services so that money would no longer be there to spend. Thirdly, if a full default occurred, other troubled countries, notably Spain and Portugal, could also follow suit, leading to a wave of defaults that would severely affect the European zone and could send shockwaves all the way to Wall Street. Fourthly, Congress is having enough difficulty resolving U.S. debt and its burden to even try to bail out some European country. And so, again, we get locked into these things, and these things are going to have worldwide ramifications. Now, turn it around. As Greece's economic failure causes ripples, the United States, if we defaulted, that would be a worldwide tsunami, and that would be more in line with what's going on in Tyre. It's causing panic throughout that known world. The Great Depression, the Great Depression started here, and what did it do? It went viral, and it's in the midst of this economic environment that somebody could real easily step up and assume control. Well, the Bible does speak of just such a person, in Revelation chapter 13, we know him as the Antichrist. In verse 11 it says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, 
and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all of the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Well, the, the idea here is he's going he's gonna to control the economic status and the economic institutions of the world. And he who controls the money, he has, I'm speaking apart from God, he who controls the money, he has the power. Well, what happens if we have a one-world government? All of the power is consolidated. All of the financial institutions are consolidated as well. It says he, the Antichrist, performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do, she allowed to do, in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Now, there's been a lot of conjecture as far as what that mark is. That mark could be something that is implanted in a person during that day. Um, we've got these barcodes. For the longest time, it was thought to be a tattoo. What is that mark? I don't have a clue what that mark is, but it is going to be something that allows a person to buy and sell. Verse 17, And no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number on his hand. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And the idea is it's the ultimate of the flesh, of the world. And so when you leave here, if you need gas, you can stop at a gas station and you can buy gas. If you don't have cash, you can use your ATM card, credit card, or whatever. On the way home, you forgot you need food, so you just go to the grocery store, and you can buy food at the grocery store. You can write a check, pay cash, use credit card, use ATM card, whatever it might be. But what happens? What happens when somebody has control over your financial institution? What happens when somebody has control, and they control your ability to buy and to sell? I mean, think about that. I mean, if you want to buy something, you don't even think about it. You just go out and you're just able to do it. Hopefully you think about it. Hopefully you pray about it, but nonetheless. But what happens when somebody has control over that? What happens when we, as we see the Antichrist come upon the scene and you get saved after the rapture? You hear the rapture. You realize Pastor Mike was right, and you get right with the Lord, and you get saved. And what happens when you're seeing your children and your wife, you see them starving to death? And, and you don't want to receive this mark of the beast, but this man who is in control, he controls basically everything, and you can't buy or sell. Buy or sell, that tells me you can't earn money, and even if you have money, you can't go and, and spend the money. Now, as far as credit cards and smartphones and anything else like that, you can make sense, but even I have to show this mark even to pay cash for something. And so you see the control that is exercised here, and that control is going to be all-encompassing. And so we see the world's situation as it's in dire straits today. It's a very fragile state today. There's going to come a time when a man, this man who seems to be a man of peace, is going to have all of the solutions. And what's the best way to get people's hearts? Listen to the promises of the politicians. 
What are they telling you? They're going to tell you that they're going to be the ones to allow you to prosper. What was, I don't remember if it was Roosevelt, but a, a, a chicken in every pot. You No longer with this depression thing are you going to have to suffer. We're going to enter into a time of prosperity. If a man could stand up there and truly, or a woman, and truly convince the people that they will prosper because he's the president or she's the president of the United States, and if he could truly grip the hearts of the people, they'll be a landslide of votes bringing them into office because people are so concerned of their finances, so concerned of their needs. Well, shouldn't we be? Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Don't vote based upon their promises. Vote according to the truth of the word of God. Seek God out. That's why we don't get into all the stuff that's going across the world and I don't have politicians up here and, and, and getting and telling you who to vote for. And all the, Go share the gospel. Sharing the gospel is going to change the world. There's not going to be one man or woman who is ever going to be able to change the world for the better apart from God. And so we seek first the kingdom of God and then everything that you need is going to be added to you. Well, what about when it comes to the, the mark of the beast? And what is the mark of the beast? How do I know I don't have the mark of the beast? You won't be here. You'll be raptured. God is gracious. You don't have to deal with it. We talk about it because we are talking to people in our lives who are going to be here during that time of tribulation, assuming it happens during our lifetime. And you look at the signs that we've been told to watch for, and it sure seems like the signs tell us that this is coming, but nonetheless, I don't have to worry about that. It doesn't matter to me personally. Now, as a pastor, I want to warn people again, but as far as me personally, I don't care what the mark of the beast is because I'm not going to be here when it comes upon the scene. Now, keep in mind, with the mark of the beast also comes the heart to worship the beast. Let's just say the mark of the beast is a tattoo Nobody can grab somebody, tattoo something on their forehead, tattoo something contrary to the will on their wrist, and send them to hell. It's all about our hearts right before the Lord Jesus Christ. But the idea during that time of tribulation that man is not going to trust in God, man is going to trust in this Antichrist. He's called the Antichrist because he presents himself as Jesus Christ, but in actuality, instead of being of the Father, he's of the devil. So remember in these prophecies, going back to Isaiah, there is the long of these prophecies and there is the short of the prophecies. The long of these prophecies seem to be pointing towards end-time events, as in Revelation 17 and 18, we have a picture of spiritual Babylon and we have a picture of commercial Babylon, these political systems that are of the Antichrist. And there will be worldwide repercussions. In Psalm 20, verse 7, we are told some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So, the commerce produced from this one location, Tyre, has a worldwide influence upon many economies. What is produced in the United States, the ec economy that is produced by the United States, has worldwide repercussions. We even have other nations entering into that it was Japan for a while, seems to be China, and now India's making waves. So you see these nations, the more they get ingrained into the worldwide economic situation, the more worldwide influence that they're able to have. And so the economic ship of our area, of this area, is the housing industry. As the housing industry flourishes, we flourish, 
When it flounders, we flounder. That's why you hear so much about new housing starts and interest rates. It's all tied to that. And so we saw the housing industry go upside down really rapidly. What was it? I think it was around, what, 2007? All of a sudden, you know, things were going well and your house value was going up and up and up. I mean, I bought my house for $100,000 back in 86, and all of a sudden in 2005, it's worth $500,000. And I'm thinking, this is insane. Who in the world is going to buy this house? It's not worth, worth $500,000. But it was insane because of all the subprime fiasco that was going on. And look how fast that sunk the ship. Just out of nowhere, it just cut the legs out from underneath our economy, and the whole thing almost collapsed because of a, a few, well, because of a group of greedy people. Secondly, the prophet then gives an explanation, verses 8 through 14. Who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth? The Lord of hosts has proposed it to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Overflow through your land like a river, O daughters of Tarshish. There is no more strength. He stretches out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its stronghold. He has said, you will rejoice no more, O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. There also you will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, that would be Babylon, this people which was not. Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers. They raised up its palaces and brought it to ruin. Well, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. So the Chaldeans, God is going to bring them back upon the scene. We looked at it a while ago, and yes, Assyria will conquer those people, but they did not destroy those people. Babylon rose up and conquered Assyria, and then we know what they did with, uh, with uh, Jerusalem, and even their attack will come against Assyria. But the main cause for the fall of Tyre is that pride was fostered through their financial success. Pride is contrary to God. What happens when you become rich, you become fat, and you become happy? And really, just think about it. You know, most people, you know, I wish I had a million dollars. Do you think that would really be a good thing for you? Do you think winning the lottery would be a real good thing for you? Look it up, Google it, lottery winners, and you'll see the disaster that has come upon those people's lives. Riches found to their own destruction. And I don't know if I can handle, I don't know if I have enough faith to handle that much money. I don't know if my faith would would endure through that. God's got me right where he needs to be. What I need to do is I need to find contentment where God has for me. Now, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and pushing forward and nothing wrong, again, with saving money and having a retirement plan and all of that, but find contentment in what God has for you. Least pride would interrupt. Now, the father of pride is the devil. And the prophet Ezekiel, when we studied Ezekiel, he equates the leader of Tyre with the uh, leader of rebellion, with the devil. Turn over to the right a couple of books to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 28. And we'll see the presence of pride in Tyre. Now again, as I said, when it comes to prophecy, there's usually a short and a long. And here in chapter 28, we see a short and a long. 
as far as the short is concerned, he's speaking to an unknown leader of the city of Tyre who was in power when the city fell. Now, chapter 28 of Ezekiel, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. Behold, are you wiser than Daniel? There is no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourselves and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries, but your great wisdom and trade, you have increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you still say before him who slays you, I am a god? But you shall be a man and not a god in the hand of him who slays you. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. So the God who inhabits eternity has told this king, who was around during the destruction of the power, this powerful city, when it, when it happened, what was going to happen. So a couple things you need to see here because of what we're going to look at further on in this chapter. First, this is a man. Verse 2, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you say you are a God, I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man. So it's important to say that he's speaking of a worldly king. He's speaking of a man. Now this man is referred to here as a prince and not a king. He's the king over that nation, but God refers to him as a prince. So if he's a prince, this tells me he has some sort of controlling authority over him. In verse 3, his wisdom is compared to Daniel's, and we know that Daniel's wisdom came from God, and so this man has some sort of supernatural source for his wisdom. Not greater, but more apparent. And then he has the most fatal of diseases He has pride. He has become lifted up in what he is able to do. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19 says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and really all these things come from somebody filled with pride, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discourse among the brethren. Now, entering into verse 11, I believe that we get to the long of the prophecy. And we see the one who is controlling the king of Tyre. It's the king of the prideful. Verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him. Now, we're not talking to the prince of Tyre. Now we are talking to the one who has the authority, the king of Tyre. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection. Full of wisdom, there's that source of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. You were in Eden? Who was in Eden? God was in Eden. Adam was in Eden. Eve was in Eden. And there was a serpent in Eden. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald, with gold. 
the workmanship of your uh, timbrels and pipes, like a tambourine and some sort of pipe, was prepared for you on the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub, speaking of an angel, who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. So no longer are we speaking of the prince, but now we are introduced to the one who is really pulling the strings of the worldwide situations, these countries that will fall before God. Instead of speaking about a man, we're now speaking of an anointed cherub, a mighty angel who at one point had access to God as he is seated upon his throne. A few things concerning this anointed cherub. First, at some point he was undefiled, and perfect. There was no sin whatsoever found in him. This creature was present, as I pointed out, in the Garden of Eden. He had some sort of priestly function. He seemed to be either the or one of the worship leaders in heaven, but at some point there was a fall. This is the one who has fallen and has never come back. Never come back. Again, where did the devil fall? Where is it that the devil fell in the scriptures? We don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. I really believe it was in between chapters 1 and chapter 3. Not so much that it's chapter 2, because chapter 2 is a reiteration of the creation of man. But I think when man came upon the scene, and God gave them the breath of life, and God's affection was placed upon mankind, I think the devil was so prideful that he couldn't deal with it. Because previously it said God looked at everything, including the angels that he created, and he said it was good. It was good. So that tells me there was no sin whatsoever at that point. But then jealousy welled up in the one who became prideful. And more than likely, it was then that he was cast out into heaven because then we see the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And what was his purpose? His purpose was to destroy God's people, the one who caused jealousy to weld up. And he's been doing that ever since. He used Egypt to enslave Israel, the nations of the world to wipe out Israel, He used Herod the Great to attempt to kill Messiah upon his birth, and he continues to harass Israel today. Now, who is the most mighty angel in the scriptures? More than likely, it's Michael, the archangel. Archangel just means exalted angel. Now, who? what is the ministry of the most mighty angel in the scriptures? More than likely, it seems very apparent that this is the angel, Michael is the angel over Israel. Why? Because Israel gets the greatest attack from the enemy. And so we see that God's plan, and we see the one who is prideful, and God's protection of his people. And as God protects his people, the fall of those who come up against him is going to be great. In verse 17, back in Ezekiel 28, it says, For your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings. That, he, that they may gaze at you. And so the devil, the devil fell, and we see in the future, sooner or later, it's going to happen. The devil is going to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Go ahead and turn back to Isaiah chapter 23. Lastly, after a lamentation, an explanation, we are told of a restoration, verses 15 through uh, 18. 
Now it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten 70 years. Now keep in mind, 70 years was about the extent of the Babylonian Empire. Forgotten 70 years according to the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make a sweet melody and sing many songs that you may be remembered. And it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world in the face of the earth, saying this nation will be reestablished and it will be business as usual. Her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up, for her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for fine clothing. Seventy years after the Babylonian Empire folded, Tyre was restored although history tells us not to the degree of her former glory. It would be later on that she would be destroyed, but not before she would be used to provide some of the building materials. We see this for the uh, second temple. We see it in Ezra chapter, chapter 3, verse 7. The Apostle Paul will land there at some point and find disciples there. But sooner or later, Tyre again will be wiped out. It is in existence today but it's very minor. It has absolutely no influence upon the area, not like it had before. So, God's message to Hezekiah in these past 11 chapters as we've been looking at these nations of the world. First thing that we've got to see is God is in control of the kingdoms of the world and he uses them for the good pleasure of his will. History has been moving slowly along but God's present has been working the events of our life out very, very carefully. So the nations are tools in his hands, but our dependency is to be on the one in whose hands these tools are used. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lead not on your own understanding. Secondly, we see in these nations that God will judge all pride. A nation that pushes God out, when it depends upon its own riches, wisdom, and strength, is going to be judged. First Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Thirdly, we see God will always give his word a promise and hope to his people. And that's what he's doing with Hezekiah, and he has done with Israel even through to today. In all the raging we hear from the nations of the world, it is the still, small voice of the Lord that gives us peace. And so we'll hear of all the promises. We'll see the rising of nations and the falling of nations. Church, we've got to be focused on the still, soft voice of the Lord. The word of God that speaks to us, the word of God that guides us. Because whoever is in office, whatever happens with this nation or any other nation, God is still in control. The rapture of the church hasn't happened. God still has purpose for the church, and you need to make that personal. God has purpose for you. Father, I just pray that we are a people who keep our eyes and our hearts stayed upon you and the power of your might. Lord, the nations come and the nations go, but Father, your word continues to endure forever. And as your word endures forever, your people will endure forever on this earth as long as you have a purpose for us and then forever in your presence. And we so look forward to that day. But as for today, Lord, again, as we get all of this information from across the world, we can so easily fall into despair. 
But Father, our trust and our hope is in you, our living God, who is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, Father, as we study your word, it's for the purpose of increasing our faith and strengthening our hope. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would constantly seek you out, not putting our trust in any man or any woman or their promises, but putting our trust in the truthfulness of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?